Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, Ben Ashworth will be speaking to physio Laura Penhall, who's also impressively a double world record holder, a performance manager, and a consultant for expeditions or world record attempts. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest, and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyses them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast. I'll switch over to Ben now for his conversation with Laura Penhall. So welcome to another episode of the Informed Performance. I'm Ben Ashworth and today on the show we've got Laura Penhall who I've known since around 2003 I think when um, Laura and I were working for the same rugby club doing some work together right back in the day Um, and Laura actually is a physiotherapist by trade. She's worked with Paralympic and Olympic sports at winter and summer games. Um, she's worked in tennis. She's worked in sailing and cycling. Um, she's a world record holder twice over and a world first record holder. And we'll find a bit more about that as we ask her about her journey in a second. But firstly, Laura, really great to uh, be able to catch up with you today and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Ben. And yeah, crikey, 2003. Is that how long ago it was? That's scary, isn't it? But yeah, the old days. It's great to catch up. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So just for the benefit of the listeners, um, if you can uh, speak about your journey, which is a very interesting journey and and, and very different to um, the kind of traditional physio route, I would say. Um, If you can speak a bit about your, your journey up to this point, just to give the listeners a bit of background. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a really good way of describing it and introducing it. It is um, slightly unconventional, I guess. Um, I I did start out, obviously, as everybody else, with with doing the sort of the the undergraduate sort of physio degree and and then starting to specialise a bit more in sport. But I guess fundamentally throughout the whole theme of it, I've always been a physio that has wanted to really understand any patient, any athlete that I've ever worked with more than just the injury so somebody came in with a twisted ankle like I just want I've always wanted to see them as a as the person um, and understand the environment and the context that that they're in so kind of you know working with say marathon runners I kind of wanted to then run a few marathons to figure out what it felt like what they were going through so to give me more context when I was working with a skier I then decided to to go and do a ski season because I wanted to again learn to ski and it is partly because I love being outdoors and I, I've got an interest in in sort of being a bit of a jack of all trades master of none in a sporting context personally but it, it also just I feel just gave me more to build the rapport with anybody that I was working with and and to, to add add a bit more value than than just the sort of not just that's that's demeaning what we do but um, I just find kind of our hands-on skills can be even more powerful if we're listening and and we've got a connection with with the patient and the athlete so so yeah so that my journey really started off NHS with as most of us and doing the rotations and then 
um I went off and did did a ski season and then started working with the GB ski team quite quickly after actually just picking up the phone to Mark Tilston at the time he was the head coach for the British ski team and just saying oh could I just come along and observe as like a proper keen bean three years out from qualifying and um and to, to be fair Ben that's most probably what I did with you wasn't it with Wasp Academy or whatever it was back then picking exactly. up the phone and being a bit of a keen bean but um but yeah so so I started to and I turned up I turned up with uh, with Mark um yeah where I turned up, sorry, at skiing and it was in Val d'Azere and I thought I was just there to observe. And it, the coach turns around to me, he's like, yeah, so we've got the men's downhill and actually the physio's not here. I figured you could do it. Are you all right with that? I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. I was like, okay, I'm just going to be treating them in the hotel or whatever. It'll be fine. It's no different. He's like, great. Well, if you can go up on the hill with them 6am in the morning, do their warm up, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll get cracking like that. And now let's put this in context. I'd only just learned to ski about a month, two months before. And now suddenly I'm standing at the top of a black, icy downhill at Val d'Azere, um, bricking myself. Uh, the fact that I now have to ski down this damn thing uh, and look cool and have all the kit. So, um, so yeah, but do you know what? That sets the scene because I guess with any sport that I've worked in, I've not necessarily known the context and the environment or the sport itself but it's the best way to learn is to literally get thrown in the deep end um and yeah and that opened the doors it was thanks to thanks to Tilston sort of you know I was working with Shemi and and a few of the other men's downhill team from the Aussies um and ended up touring and and doing a few bits with them which just opened opened the doors into into sport really and from that then I worked with the Paralympic ski team um and went to Vancouver Games with them. And and the reason for that is because we had a pretty successful team. And also, yeah, they, they didn't have any any major support at the time. So I was really, really always intrigued with Paralympic sport because I loved the individual. I loved the fact of what they've overcome uh, with the significant adversity that has been thrown at them. And, you know, it's it's about optimising what their abilities are. And that, that really sort of connects with me. So, so yeah, so I then went into Paralympic sport and that followed through to Paralympics GB for 2012 and then into British athletics. I became the head physio for the Paralympic British athletics team through to 2016. And during that time, that was also when I then stepped away personally and alongside working had come across sort of an opportunity for myself to to explore and go into ocean rowing, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a little bit. But um, but basically, as I as I said before, I like to understand the athletes and the people I work with. And when I went into Paralympic sport, my biggest thing was that, you know, if it's a marathon runner, if it's um, working with a skier, I can go and try that sport out. And yeah, I won't be an Olympic medalist at it, but I can just get the context and the environment. Whereas with Paralympics, you know, you can't replicate having to go through significant adversity that they've gone through and it just fascinated me to sort of understand what do people like draw on when they're faced with wanting to give up and and then not give up and then strive to sort of want to get the most out of life and I know that's a bit deep and philosophical but it really was the sort of question I keep asking myself of like why why do we wait for adversity to be thrown at us why why is it that um 
yeah, we we have to have a major curveball to then want to make the most out of every you know what we what abilities we do have. So it kind of was making me push myself to do different things, and and that's what entered me into more of the world of expedition and extreme medicine type stuff because you know doing the triathlons half Ironman stuff I was doing at the time it just wasn't really pushing the boundaries for me in that context and I wanted to do something that was out of my comfort zone completely totally unknown to me and was gonna be somewhere that I'd most probably want to give up but I couldn't and wanted to know what it was that I was going to draw on during those times and that's when, yeah, I, I was looking for something significant and found out about ocean rowing. And and that ocean rowing journey evolved into what was supposed to be a small one-month journey soon became a much bigger one, which was the Pacific. So, so yeah, so that's, that's then what you alluded to, Ben, at the start was, you know, we can go into that in a bit more detail. But, yeah, we, we then set out in 2015 and as a team, as a crew of four, a crew of six or eight, and a team of four on the boat, any one time, and we set from San Francisco in 2015 and finished in Cairns, Australia, in 2016. Uh, I had nine months at sea, 253 days at sea, um, and yeah, but through doing that, we were the first ever all four female crew and all four crew ever to row from mainland America to mainland Australia um, via rowing only. So, so yeah, so that was a it was one a great personal achievement. Um, for sure just to sort of show what what you actually can achieve when you when you're really focused and you've got a really strong belief in what you're doing and a, a real strong purpose but it, it I did it more because I wanted to understand the athletes I wanted to understand what you need to draw on to 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 achieve your goals and and that's what that was one of the biggest drivers for for doing the row and was it was one of the biggest learnings for me as well to carry forwards and then therefore support my athletes with a bit more depth um, in in kind of seeing them as as the human being in front of me and making sure they're they're getting what they want out of out of the sport, the context, and and really owning it, I guess. And then, sort of off the back of doing the row, went into Rio twenty sixteen, finished Rio twenty sixteen, stepped out of the sort of Paralympic Olympic sport circle, and started working with Naomi Osaka for a year on the on the tennis circuit. And alongside that was had committed to supporting Mark Beaumont on an expedition which was cycling around the world in under 80 days, which basically combined my passion of bringing performance, which I'd been working in for sort of the, the previous kind of 10 to 12 years and bringing that to somebody who'd never, <laughs> never thought really about performance. You know, Mark Beaumont is your classic of he's cycled around the world before he cycled the length of Africa and set the world record there. He cycled the length of America. The guy has done, he's an absolute machine. He's done a huge amount, but has never, ever had any, any sort of, sort of physiological testing, training. He doesn't even look at his bike setup, you know, like so to do 80 days. Um, I mean, he could have changed his saddle. He could have changed his saddle height and he, he wouldn't bat an eyelid. You know, he would jump on any bike and not think about it. Um, so to get him into getting sort of some basic measures and testing in place and to set him up and, and to just get him to hydrate and, and to fuel better when he's on the bike, I was really intrigued to see actually what performance could we get out of this person 
given the sort of achievements he's had to date, if we just add some basic foundational work around him, what what could he achieve? And and that was phenomenal to be part of that, to both help to prepare him and then support him on the around the world, which he he achieved um, and achieved it in in under eighty days, which was a phenomenal achievement in itself. Uh, and then off the back of that, I kind of came back into the world of Olympic sport. And up until October last year, I was I was head physio with British Sailing, and then had the sort of the tough decision at that point of actually, yeah, I don't think my head's in that sort of conformed elite sport physio space anymore. Um, and actually, yeah, now need to need to sort of continue on my own journey in more performance management in in different spheres. And so that's what I did in October when the, the games got postponed. Um, and yeah, and that's that's where I'm at now with working with an eclectic portfolio mix of different athletes, expeditions and, and other environments as well. I think the word wow comes to mind. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a bit long-winded, wasn't it? Sorry, I got on a rant. No, there. no, I, I, I hope, I hope that, that the people listening to this are doing what I'm doing, which is just to be astonished at the, the, the journey. And, you know, I deliberately, um, when I had a look sort of at your background, I deliberately tried to look at a few things, but I don't think anything can really get across that, that um, you know, that ocean uh, that ocean sort of experience as you and and in fact I did come across one thing that you'd started and you got 500 miles or something and then you had to go back to the start again which was uh you know I mean yeah yeah (laughs) an absolute shocker and certainly a test um you know at that point yeah do you know what though what's I mean there's so many learnings from the row and it was uh, it's helped me no end in in kind of how I support athletes going forwards because there, there were so many different setbacks, but there was also so many parallels to what our athletes experienced. So, you know, it took me four years to get to start line. And even then, it, that wasn't the plan. It wasn't the plan to be four years. The plan was for it to be a year and then go. And of course, you know, we were underprepared, didn't have like actually the proper team together, didn't have the finance, all of that stuff. So then it was like, right, wake up, call. OK, we'll go next year then things still weren't quite right. And it was like, right, do you give up? Or, you know, if you've got a strong, and the thing was, I had such a strong passion and a vision. And I just knew that there was going to be a team of all four women that one day in my lifetime, were going to row the Pacific. And it was cheesing me off that I couldn't set that up. So it was like, right, well, it's, it's, like we do it's just an analyzing reviewing reflecting on okay well what's not working and why is it not working what other things can I try um and who can I speak to what expertise can I put around me to get the best out of me in essence and you know not expect myself to know everything or especially in that world which was completely unknown to me and it was great because being a blank canvas having never rode before having never been have never sort of lost sight of shore not done any sailing stuff in the past everything was brand spanking new and and you know I'm pretty sure well I know that you've you've interviewed Wolfie Alex Wolf on this podcast before and he's a good friend and Wolfie was one of the first people I picked up the phone to when I decided to row an ocean I was like (laughs) mate I'm gonna this is what I'm gonna do and his usual response as with most people's was like well you're just nuts that's ridiculous you've never sat in a rowing boat before why would you suddenly row the pacific you know you could just try the channel 
if you really want a challenge. Um, and yeah, and and I kind of was like, yeah, but I just think it's doable and I want to see how far I can get if I surround myself with the best experts. So he was the first person I picked up the phone to. He was head S&C coach at GB Rowing at the time. And so who better to speak to to say, right, how can I get myself big enough, robust enough and conditioned well enough to withstand repetitive rowing for months at a time? And um, and yeah, so he helped get me on track with a uh, severe, um, significant, should I say, weight gain going from like a 50, what was I, 58 kilo marathon runner to a 72 kilo rower, which he took great delight in, by the way. You know, we'd go for dinner and he'd be the one making me chomp on a 24 ounce steak and God knows what else and taking great glee in it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was, it was, it was highlighting to me kind of as much as sometimes we can be the expert that we, we sort of input into an athlete, but it's, you know, there's, I think there's great, um, I've always learned a lot from surrounding myself with experts so that I can deliver the best care to the people that I'm working with. And the row really sort of embodied that. I think also the other learning from, well, there's, there's loads, but the biggest parallels I would say to sport context as well was that, you know, it was four years to the start line and how many athletes do we have that get injured um, or other circumstances that get taken out of their control to a certain extent, which means, you know, they miss a significant time scale it might be they they miss a europeans or a world champs and suddenly that you know vision of being selected to go to the olympics feels like it's drifting further and further away um whereas if you can keep that engagement and you can you can sort of keep that fire in the belly through different ways and means of of tapping into what their purpose and their beliefs are it's really really powerful and that was the parallel i had for that four-year cycle and then, you know, out at sea, it was getting the job done. It was sort of the focus that you need and, and sort of just breaking stuff down into bite-sized chunks of literally stroke by stroke, shift by shift, two hours on, two hours off for 24-7, um, day by day, leg by leg. And then eventually, suddenly, you're there in, in Australia, which, you know, five years yet later, practically. Yeah, it sounds like... Um a lot of learnings for you personally which is great and you're actually translating those learnings now into sort of corporate spaces as well aren't you you're doing some work um outside of the world of sport yeah yeah it's been it's been really interesting sort of because when you yeah doing that stuff and that isn't why I did it at all as I said it's it's very much been about how to support the people I work with on the clinical front but um having done that and you know and it brought some media exposure we we had a documentary that was made from it which was on netflix we were really fortunate with all that stuff but the you know that has led to kind of highlighting um yeah that corporates have come forwards in different shapes and forms for me to talk about the leadership style that i had and how i pulled the team together and and the sort of the difficulties we faced and and and, and to me like it doesn't interest me to be perfectly honest to just talk about the row and talk about the journey. It's got to have application. And I, I just see that there's so many parallels in the struggles that we face in a day-to-day life, whether that's in sport, whether that's, you know, COVID, you know, that we're all, we've all been going through lately. The, the classics that there's certain human behaviors that we, we all face. And that the point is, and why I love expedition and the extreme medicine stuff is it strips away all the noise 
like totally. And it takes you back to proper raw basics of survival and what you really need to focus on. And the day-to-day life that we live in now is just so comfortable. We've got everything at our fingertips that we sort of sometimes forget what what's actually necessary and, and what sort of, you know, what we can control that is the simplistic part of life. And that's, you know, I think expeditions, extreme medicine, just can strip back that and, and show you the power of simplicity um, and then what you can achieve by just doing the basics and doing them well. Yeah, definitely. Something that I think, you know, from my own personal perspective, you're sometimes very blessed working in a world of elite sport with a lot of technologies at your fingertips and uh, perhaps more than you actually need. So yeah, stripping it back to keeping it simple is something that I try and do, but uh, hearing it, in the context of that kind of extreme world that you've been working in is it, it brings it a bit more to light for me as well. Um, I, I think sort of just to now sort of segue a little bit into, um, or at least pick up some of the stuff you've been talking about. You've worked in a number of different sports. Um, and obviously within these different sports, you're trying to understand the sports specifics. You're trying to understand what the program might look like what preparation looks like for each different athlete in those different sports. But where you've come to, um, I know you're kind of taking a more sort of human-centered performance approach. And I just wanted to sort of open it up to you to discuss what that what that means to you and to to give the listeners a little bit of your your sort of opinion, your your bias and your kind of experiences, if you like, on on that, on your focus when you're working with athletes and teams. Yeah, no, and it, it's a great question. I think, I mean, first and foremost, diversity within a team, I think, is really powerful and really important. So having people that are clinical specialists and and really good deep domain expertise, I think, is extremely important. Um, I guess, you know, I've always sat more in the generalist, you know, rather than a spe- or maybe a specialist at being a generalist, <laughs> if you get me. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I'd like to think I can assess reasonably sort of well to a good standard but to me then you've got people like yourself Ben that you know I would pick up the phone to or reach out to you're a shoulder specialist you've got some great insight and experience there so therefore I could spend days weeks going down a path or I can pick up the phone to you to get your specialist opinion and maybe be a bit more specific in what my approach and application can be or bring you in or get that athlete to come and see you to assess and diagnose so you know, I just want to optimize what it is for the athlete. And I, and sometimes I've felt like, you know, I, I don't know, in, in the sort of the journey that I've had, and that's potentially, well, it's a big reason why I sort of stepped out because I felt like I was, I was needing to conform in what a very clinical sort of physio approach should be. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. I just started to recognize that wasn't, you know, I was really moving towards more wanting to you know see in the holistic of a of a patient an athlete um and therefore sometimes recognizing that physio was just not well placed at that time it might be actually working with a psychologist it might be removing them from the sport altogether because i could see that you know that the fire in their belly is gone and they don't you know they've lost a sense of identity or um and, and to me i then end up having quite strong empathy in with my athletes to sort of go actually, you know, I think what's best for you right now is speaking to this person over here or dealing with, you know, directing them elsewhere. So I've, 
I guess my practice has evolved over time to recognizing the strengths that um, people that I've worked with bring through different specialties and, you know, drawing on that, not feeling like I've got to own everything uh, and be the the key deliverer. Um, if I want, if I want the best for, for the athlete, then I want, I want them to see the best. So, and that isn't necessarily me. Um, and that could well be, like I say, it might not be physio that's, it, that's the strand or deep domain expertise that's required at that point. It might be better for them to spend some time with the physiologist or nutritionist or psychologist or whoever within our team, um, rather than so many voices sometimes going in to an athlete. Um, and so I guess I started to, I've started to evolve more into wanting to go shoulder to shoulder with an athlete or a team to, to recognize, have a fairly good understanding and a, a recognition of identifying what they might need and then pulling the right experts in to deliver that in the most efficient and effective way. And I guess a, a, a good sort of example of that would be um, you know, there's, there's a female player, a tennis player that uh, so there's a there's a couple that I look after but one in particular and and there was sort of there was a longevity of of kind of injury history and and sort of a a kind of a yeah a not great sort of female health background when they were younger you know from the age of like 16 to 20 being a menorrheic and and then you know thankfully going to a, a new team and and them sort of wrapping right wrapping them around but They've they've had historically sort of episodic injuries that just people couldn't quite put their finger on, um, and and yeah, by going in and shoulder to shoulder with that person, understanding what their needs and wants are, and and then so seeing them first as the human and first what their beliefs feelings are and listening to them is crucial, and then from that speaking to the team that are currently wrapped around them and then identifying okay who would be like where's the best what's our biggest bang for our buck that we're going to we're going to be able to make a shift on here and what does the athlete think on that front so to me the athlete themselves has to own it you know that they've got to be part of the process and and through my journey I've and I've done it myself I I've definitely fallen you know fallen short with athletes before where I've I would say I've most probably made decisions and not articulated it well with the athlete or made decisions for them rather than actually with them and I it sounds subtle but I think it's something that's crucial um and I've become more sensitive to it over the years latterly um because I think we can as sports scientists as a whole cohort of us we can think we see what is the biggest thing that they need to do but you know they're at the center and we really do have to get them on board and if they're not on board and they're thinking that they need to be working on something else and you're saying no you need to work on your physiology when really their psychology is not in a good state and you know if their focus and their belief isn't where you want it to be the adherence isn't going to be there um and the belief isn't going to be there so therefore your effectiveness isn't going to be anywhere near where you want it to be so sometimes i think you've got to compromise the yeah the where the main focus might be in order to get them on board and get the adherence in the in the first state and secondly to that yeah there's a big there's a there's a big power I think personally and this is just my opinion in in an athlete just owning it like and really believing and owning 
what their pathway of treatment and rehab is and so them having some active choices in in the process and when they're getting time off and and just being involved in that and asking for their opinions and helping to guide athletes versus tell uh, and again don't get me wrong I've, I've spent years in a tell space and it's there's certain people I've worked with and I would say actually Paul Mullen who was a um he was head of sports science and medicine at British Sailing. He did this brilliantly and really highlighted this to me, just the art of questioning, right? Where just how do you question to just get somebody to think slightly differently and how we can use that art of questioning with the athletes and the people that we work with just to get them on board to think, yeah, to think in a certain, to challenge our thinking both for ourselves and for for somebody else without always being in a tell space when we think we know what's going on based on limited information that we might have. And so I suppose, again, it's going off a bit deep, but the to me, I like to build a rapport with an athlete. I like them to be part of it. I want to feel t- like I'm in a team with them and that they're sharing sort of the ownership on the decisions that we're making because in my experience, if they don't, then we're also giving them a bit of a an out and a bit of a, a sort of a what's the word like and it an external sort of reason if something doesn't doesn't go so well and what I mean by that is a classic example or maybe a good example would be previously in a sport there was there was a pairs team and they got selected to go to the games and in their voice whether this was rightly or wrongly and if this did happen or not I don't know but in their opinion when they got selected they suddenly were bombarded with sports science support around them, everybody trying to optimise this, that and the other and pulling them in this direction, that direction. Obviously, everybody in that sports science team was doing it for thinking that they're going to get the best performance out of this pair. But when it came to the games, this pair would say that they felt pretty overwhelmed and actually felt like that was what took them off their game and so then they weren't successful at the games and they thought they would be more so so in the next cycle they stepped completely away from the program and only engaged with sort of the things and the people on their own terms which to be honest I massively respected and I was like you know what yes you might be trying to train right now with a horrendous elbow tendinopathy that is not you know not getting better by doing what you're doing but I've given them the advice and, and that, you know, they know the decisions that they're making and they've got to own that. So, and I think that's something that we can overlook. And I've certainly overlooked in the past. I've definitely fallen short of that. And only latterly would I say, if I really recognize the value of a, of an athlete owning their pathway and then therefore, you know, allowing them to fail to a certain extent, as long as you've, you know, you're acting in best practice um or sharing the right information so they've got informed informed consent and all of that stuff but yeah I, I think them owning the decision so that they can learn from failures as well as as well as successes um is is important yeah that that actually you know that really resonates with me too this kind of empowering empowering the athlete um you know we've had a we've had a chat before about this and that's that's certainly one of the words that you've you've used when we've spoken before empowering the athlete to make their own decisions to own their own decisions I remember uh, one of the players uh, that I worked with at one point uh, who'd had a pretty checkered injury history in recent times and he bounced off a few other people and was seen as one of those awkward players who 
you know, nothing's going to make him better. And we we met, I think we had a sort of appointment time and he said, right. And he jumped on the couch and said, no, 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 put your shoes on. We're going for a walk. And he sort of looked at me like I'm crazy. And we walked around the grounds of the, the place I was working at, at the time. And it was a 45 minute consult essentially, but I was just asking him what had worked for him, what hadn't worked for him, you know, trying to understand because I was trying to, you know, maybe, maybe use the benefit of his experiences of his own opinion and, and he's a human and I knew the people who'd worked with him were good practitioners but whatever was being done wasn't helping this individual so it was trying to tap into a different angle with him and you know you sometimes if you come in like that uh, as a last resort you, you often you often go to that point where you have to go down and sort of try and understand more about why things haven't worked but perhaps we should be doing that up front more and I'm certainly guilty of that in my in my career for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it is funny. I mean, there's that's a really good example of you, you know, getting something to put the shoes on, going for a walk and not jumping on the bed. And and actually, you know, at British Sailing, Lily Devine, who is the head physio now, um, performance support at Sailing, you know, I, I stepped into her role for maternity leave to start with and then continued when she went into a performance support role. And, and she'd set up that same process of like there was a chair by the door, <laughs> there and they you know they had to come in and sit down on the chair not not go to the bed um and and it's really interesting though that kind of it is funny and it this comes down to our own personas and self-awareness of how we operate as clinicians because in when I reverted back into that environment I suddenly went back into a bit of a clinical mode and just a bit of a routine and a process whereas out of there and I suppose because I felt like there was expectation which is only you know um my perception of what I'm putting on myself not actually what was going on or what was there but out of that context I do exactly what you were saying Ben of you know I'd sit and have a chat go for a walk have a coffee just get the full picture um if I was working independently but as soon as I went into a clinical room I pretty much would act like an athlete of being like right yeah okay this is you know this is the process and going into a bit of an automatic right they come in get on the bed have a chat but actually what was great there is that changed that and and sort of Lily had recognized that as well which is yeah it's really good but sometimes that can work both ways you know with athletes and us as therapists we've got to recognize when we're just going into habitual format versus um yeah mixing it up a little bit to, to get more more out of both of us yeah and it's easy enough I suppose to spend time when you've got time so if you're working with an individual athlete you can go for a walk you can then have a session you can go for a coffee you can do all those sorts of things um and perhaps even with smaller athlete groups but when it comes to the the larger athlete groups you know going back to what you were saying before it lends itself more to this empowerment so that you don't create that kind of dependency on you um yeah as a physio yeah yeah no i agree with that and i um and, and that's something yeah being able to keep that lens that that zooming out and zooming in sort of respect you know especially in the elite sport when you've got you've got a program that might be 62 athletes and then you know you've suddenly got a selected group that are about 12 15 that are going to the games that are the high priorities that um you know having that strategic approach to be able to zoom out and zoom back in again you know I, I've got to be honest in the in the latter stages I struggled with that because I was always fighting with. <laughs> 
the, the sort of the time frame, the restrictions and coordinating everything. But that is exactly what I was going after was that for outside of the sort of podium guys, then you still want to make sure the right care and delivery is 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 provided to those that are the developing athletes and those that are the potential athletes will be going to 2024. So as part of that process, my strategy was more about well, how do we create more empowerment in in the, this cohort of athletes? Because to to me, you know, what would be success is one of those athletes walking into the clinic room or, or picking up the phone to me and saying, right, I twist my ankle doing this. I've now iced it. I've elevated it. I've strapped it. I've done X, Y, and Z. I totally get that I've twisted it, but I need your advice on, you know, actually what have I done? And you're like, right, great. Actually, they've done all that initial good self-management plan and they're now coming to us for the specifics uh, and what we're there for, you know, versus being there all the time to do all the strapping up and the icing and the the booting and the crutches and stuff when it's two three days down the line and you're like damn it (laughs) if this was only done on day one and I knew about it on day one you know it would have been a lot better so if we can inform the athletes to then self-manage better we're just improving that recovery timeline aren't we and and hopefully focusing on the clinical skill sets a bit more that we've got than than the stuff that's that's straightforward yeah, I think that's a challenge that, you know, if you've worked in Olympic sport and you worked with a, a larger cohort of athletes or, you know, any sport, any sport that's, um, you've got to juggle uh, a large number um, of players or athletes. It, it is about scaling it, isn't it? It's about making it scalable. It's about prioritizing. Um, it's a, it's a coordination and logistical challenge as much as it is a sort of clinical challenge at times. Um, and it- I want to, Sorry, go go ahead, go ahead. No, no. Well, no, the only thing I was going to say as well, what, what's kind of, I think we've all got a similar similar view on that, right? That kind of the ideal is is sort of athlete empowerment and they're, you know, they're, they're coming to us. But um, that also takes, you know, in the, in the younger sort of the youth, the juniors and stuff, if they've not had an injury or illness in our, our sort of field, then sometimes it takes for them to have an injury or an illness for them to recognize the impact it has and to, to know the strategies. But without that, then it's how do you create that behavior change? How do you create that empowerment when they don't see the value in that sort of space? And that fascinates me of, of what you tap into, whether it's the role models and other people that aren't ourselves that sound like we're being sort of teachers about it, like our approach and getting them on board, getting them to design their own programs to a certain extent for prevention stuff um, to create longer standing behavior change. And again, for them to own it, um, I think is, yeah, is is a fascinating space to see when it's done well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I want to, um, I want to go back to a little bit more kind of specifics. Um, And and in particular, you mentioned some stuff there around a, a female athlete and it's, it's a space that I, you know, I'm certainly no expert in, and would reach out to an expert to deal with. But you know, you've had uh, certainly a decent amount of experience now in the management of kind of the female athlete, and I just wondered if you can talk to us a little bit about um, some of the key things that y- you might do differently um, when managing f- female athletes, or certainly some of the things that you would look for um, in the management of female athletes. Yeah, I think. 
I think fundamentally there's, well, female or male, there, there's certain things, but we've maybe been, and this isn't a feminist approach and it, it's always what I've got to be, I always get, I suppose, defensive about. If just It's just recognising the individual that's in front of you and yeah. I guess historically and I you know it's only been latterly that I've really started to understand the female athlete even though I'm a female <laughs> and yeah. I suppose doing the row stuff but there were certain choices that I made personally with decisions I made to optimize my personal performance based on because I had some scientific knowledge and understanding and it wasn't until I was going through some stuff that I was like actually yeah, how specific are we when we when we treat and assess our female athletes? And that was supported as well by alongside that there was Emma Ross is a is a brilliant um, physiologist that was the head physiologist at the English Institute of Sport, and she set up the Smart Her project, which was just started with creating discussions around how specific are we being with the female athletes? What do we know? Like, and are we asking the questions? Do and Long story short, a lot of the things that have come out is, you know, the the application, whether it's training, whether it's load, whether it's physiology sort of assumptions that we've made are based around the physiology of a, of a male athlete. And actually, you know, we've not been able to monitor the influence of the female hormones as much and the same in the, in the medicine world because they're different from female to female, month to month, let alone between females so therefore it's difficult to get scientific clinical studies in place and so then it's not necessarily been done and so like long story sort of short I suppose long way round to saying it you know latterly I've just really recognized thankfully having worked with Emma and Dr Rich Burden as well who's head of biosciences with it's just um highlighting to me the importance of of kind of the hormonal system and the menstrual cycle. And it's not just that though, like that's only a very small part of it, but there's been plenty of times historically where I've seen on a note system that a female athlete has got amenorrhea, for instance, you know, lack of periods. And that gets palmed off then to the chief medical officer, the doc. And then often the, the you know, the doc would then forward that person to, a gynecologist or um you know to make sure that there's not anything that's underlying or if somebody's got sort of really painful periods it's yeah they get straight away sent off to the to a gynecologist and made sure there's nothing major that's underlying and often they come back and no there isn't anything significant to be aware of so but then it seems to be well then so what like what happens then and there there isn't a huge amount that's historically been done and and actually, there's so much stuff of like the link of the pelvic floor and the influence that that has to female performance. It the presentation um, it provides. Like what we you know is not commonly talked about is that the young females are, there's a lot that might have stress incontinence, which is crazy. You'd think that would only happen in um, pre yeah, sorry postnatal women that have given birth and stuff where their their pelvic floor has been affected but actually we're seeing it more and more in the young females and especially the young females that are in sports such as tennis and and other other sports like that we've got rapid change of direction torsion that's going across the pelvis and and the loads that they need to tolerate um 
and it actually the the pelvic floor specialists or pelvic specialist physios will say that there's a you know we talk about the pelvic floor needing to be tense we you know to do exercises and actually it's the opposite sometimes it's trying to assess and diagnose whether in the younger athletes they're over tense and all the abdominal loading that we do and the sling work that we do uh time under tension and trying to get sort of you know trunk stiffness a pillar stiffness is all great to a certain extent but through that we create a lot of bracing and if females don't have that awareness across their pelvic floor and the interaction with the diaphragm and how they breathe then you could be overstressing that pelvic floor they could be over tense and then as soon as they need to do a bit of a wide step or a sudden a sudden um, change of direction uh, they get pressure onto their bladder and they get they get a sense of urgency or a sense of leaking and and that's that's not okay but they don't necessarily talk about it and and also you know we don't necessarily ask the question you know it wasn't something I was aware of until about five five or six years ago um when I was working with with a player and and yeah and it suddenly highlights to me that there's certain things that we don't necessarily tap into now the with the pelvic floor that also if if an athlete is over over tense there's also as long as that's diagnosed well there's there's ways to then get it to relax there could be over scarring sometimes as well that but there's a whole host of things that could be happening that can be well treated if it's caught you know in good time when they're young but it can become a real problem as they get older secondly if somebody does have an overtight pelvic floor it can present with constipation and um gi sort of difficulties they also if they're over tense in their pelvic floor there's potential discussion around does that cause overstress in the abdominals um so repeated rectus abdominis tears or adductor tears often we would also highlight the fact that they may not have the strength in those areas so they're they're trying to use other other places to fix um so there, there's that whole system in itself. And then when we go back to sort of the hormonal cycle stuff is how that interacts as well with if they're not getting a natural cycle. So if, if an athlete is amenorrheic, as I sort of started this conversation with, um, and there's not a major medical concern like polycystic ovaries or anything like that that, that needs a medical intervention, then we also know, and this is fairly common now, isn't it, of, of the we used to call it the female triad, but it's not just specific to females, but we recognize it in females with the loss of period because if people are if females aren't fueling enough, then that red S relative energy deficit syndrome stuff is is really relevant to the fact that when it becomes significant, our first thing that goes in our system is is um is periods, is a menstrual cycle. And that's our body's way of shutting down and protecting ourselves. Get, because we just don't have the energy to to go through the cycle which is pretty powerful if we think about how many athletes i've seen on medical notes with amenorrhea in the lifetime of you know my career lifetime there's actually quite a few um which is shocking to be honest and i think for sure we've now got obviously great nutritionists and physiologists that are involved to correct that now and and do proper energy utilization assessments um energy expenditure assessments sorry um and making sure that yeah the athletes are fueling well whether that's male or female which is crucial but the impact that has on their hormonal cycles 
is what's been an eye opener to me is that even when they do get the nutrition back on track and you you start to see them having periods I've made the assumption in the past that okay that's fine they're they're good we've done the right intervention there we're back on track great then nothing more needs to be done but latest stuff that's been happening with a company called Mint Diagnostics Hormonics that Rich Burden has brought into the Institute of Sport to validate and, and sort of get some volume through. Um, the fascinating thing that I've been using this with a particular female athlete that I'm working with, we've tracked her cycle, um, getting her to do daily reporting on all of her symptoms for the past 18 months. And then we started doing hormonal tracking with with Mint Diagnostics for the past four or five months. And that's like saliva sampling. And, and yeah, and we, we get the sort of results at the end of the month. And that shows levels of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and in the future it'll do cortisol and stuff as well. But certainly tracking with her estrogen and progesterone. Now her cycle was, she had a return cycle, which is great, but it wasn't necessarily that frequent. And it was starting to be sort of a little bit outside the normal 28 to 35 days. Um, And she would still have blocks of even up to 60 days without a period at times. But if you looked at her diet, you would say, well, she's fueling at the right time around sport and she seems to be taking on board reasonable amount. But um, you, you do that as a bit of an eye and a guesswork. Looking at the hormonal tracking, though, what's been fascinating is, yes, she's having a, a menstrual cycle. She's having a bleed, but it was showing her estrogen was actually really erratic and her progesterone is flatlined. So therefore, she's not actually having a normal menstrual cycle it means that she's having a an ovulatory she's not not releasing an egg every month and and that's really detrimental to her long-term health and that's also recognizing that that's a fertility risk in the future now it's 20 whatever mid 20 year old that might not be on the you know an interest or concern right now but we're not doing our due diligence or duty of care if we don't recognize that long-term health implication and do something about it and uh, so the the stuff that's out there now and recognizing being able to track hormones and their cycle and the impact that we have if we do an intervention, I think is crucial. And I think the what we're doing now with this particular athlete with the nutritional side of things is much closer with the energy, energy in, energy expenditure monitoring um, and making sure you know that that's up to scratch because when we really looked when we then analyzed it and looked into it this athlete was still like a thousand calories down on on some key days which obviously is just not yes yeah, not good enough um yeah. so but getting her psychology on board with how to fuel more i mean that's that's the other bigger part of the puzzle isn't it with with sort of a history like that but um Anyway, I'm ranting, sorry, but yeah, the, the female athlete health space fascinates me because I think there's so much to it. There is the hormones, there's the pelvic floor, but there's also small things that, you know, Emma and the Well HQ would talk about of little things like a sports bra can save you a, a mile on a marathon, so you can take time off, but yet we focus on wearing like the Nike, what are they called, the, you know, the the fly, the nike fly trainers and stuff thinking that we're gonna cut four seconds off our time when actually we could we could sort of yeah cut serious time off if we wore if a female wore the right sports bra which is nuts (laughs) it's nuts 
And uh, fascinating. I won't go down how a, how a sports bra might help me in, in my latter age um, <laughs> to cut to shave some time off my uh, to shave some time off my mile uh, my mile times. But um, give it a go, mate. See how you go. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll send you a photo. I'll, I'll post it to the informed performance group. I'm sure at some point in the future, uh, maybe in 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 sort of some sort of charitable uh, charitable donation event. But no, that's. <laughs> There's seven fascinating insights um, for people working with female athletes there, and certainly it's something very new to me. Um, I want to go a little bit back to kind of this journey and, and and where we started, and sort of give you a chance now to think about the broader the broader picture. We just talked about how like the kind of holistic approach, if you like, around a female athlete example. Um, you know, what are you taking? And what have you taken really from your journey, the world outside of sport, um, certainly in, outside the world of kind of conventional sport and, and how that can that can complement what you're doing right now? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I, I mean, it, it, I think coming from a world that's in sport, we, we feel like that is the world. I don't know. Or that certainly was the impression I got when I was very much in it. And it's I've loved stepping out of it from a point of view of it it opening my eyes to a number of different things that are going on that are out there that the world's a lot lot bigger than the world of sport and um and yet certainly in say for instance world extreme medicine which sort of I'm fortunate to be faculty of and the the people that I work with there are yeah just amazing and you, you the stories that go on from humanitarian relief work the extreme medicine stuff from whether it's the heli medicine um to all the different stuff that we were doing polar versus jungle all the different environments there's so much that can be i think that in those environments where we're really restricted to and very remote in how we deliver care um can really sort of help some of the foundational basics, I think, in how we operate in a sport context and vice versa, what we know in sport to be a good way to optimise performance can help the extreme medicine world. But, I mean, to give you an example of of that as well, I think there are things that I took from now working in the extreme medicine stuff from a humanitarian point of view. You go to the third world countries, for instance, and this is a bit abstract, but third world countries and you've got, massive loss of life numbers due to dmv and cholera because people just aren't able to manage themselves well and obviously the water quality and those sorts of things um but if people knew how to self-manage themselves well that'd be great now part of the problem was they can't get to the nearest sort of dock you know relief support and they ended up you know they've they've put programs in place which now are like even just instead of raising the money to build say a hospital they've put small amount of finance and a lot less cost to get some education and awareness out so that people can actually again take empowerment so it takes self self direction themselves in in how to manage and and yeah not be reliant on others which i think is a is a great is great to see and they're doing that on a mass mass scale um also just what they do in humanitarian work with the the ability to sort of pop up medical units and full surgical procedures in extremely horrendous environments is is unbelievable um 
And then, you know, from that working with, um, I'm on the lifeboat down here in Cornwall. And, and that, again, stripping it back to the basics of pure survival, that's really helped kind of doing the lifeboat stuff. I brought that into working with sailing because it was that there was such a, you know, we focused so much on the performance, but actually, you know, we, we want to maximize availability. And for instance, to be the close contact, I'd say, is that from doing the lifeboat work and seeing how we do casualty care out on the water, and it's a really simplified process that the RNI teach us, and it doesn't matter what your background, you don't need to be medical. Um, one of the strategies I did with sailing was bringing in a trauma strategy, was completely rewriting um a new first aid sort of awareness stuff for the coaches and the athletes because basically I'm the physio and the doc we're not there on the water with them and these boats now are becoming foiling and there's high risk of catastrophic bleed significant head injuries entrapment all of these things which are what we see on the lifeboat and so I wanted to make sure the coach and the athletes have a process in place know how to operate um and can be independent with that so that they've got the right kit on the on the ribs with the coaches they've got a method of communication um and everybody knows what they're doing and they feel then the confidence if they've got that stuff and they're competent in those skills suddenly they've got the confidence to push the boundaries of performance um because what we were finding is when i started asking and talking to the athletes and coaches about this was that you know, they were, they were actually, we had some athletes that were scared of falling in the water and they're sailors. And if they're scared of falling in the water, they're not going to stick the boat on the edge. And if they're not sticking the boat on the edge, they're, you know, they're not pushing that boundary of performance. So, you know, with, with sort of the help of Paul Mullen in sort of how to shape this strategy and not make them scared of trauma and make them sort of like, oh my God, I don't want to fall in the water because I might have a catastrophic bleed. It was the other way around of trying to frame it to sort of say, actually, you know, if we can get you confident in the water and and sort of, you know, getting them to do um, safety drills and getting them to, to do swimming pool drills of holding their breath and going underwater and swimming under the boat, all that sort of stuff was all part of the strategy to build their confidence so that they could push boundaries of performance. And that only came about because of the work I'd done outside of elite sport, um, working with extreme medicine and being on the lifeboat. And so that was that's one example of where I've felt the outer world has helped me bring it back into sport. And vice versa, I would say doing the stuff that I've done in corporate has definitely helped um, from the world of learning performance in a sport context to now understanding, you know, what people need to deliver on a on a critical performance goal in a corporate environment obviously is very different but at the same time it's cognitive performance and they need to sustain a high level of pressure and performance output on a regular basis but therefore what we focus on in a corporate space might be more mindset and and kind of sustainable cognitive load management which again is also can be useful for those sports that are very cognitive load heavy. Uh, I just, I, I'm sort of, you lost me there because I was just thinking about loads of things based on our, on our conversation. Not lost me. I think it's just, I'm, it's just very thought provoking. Um, the way you no, kind of I can think. Imagine it, where, yeah, I was going to say that I can imagine it is a bit losing. I mean, I do get the fact that sort of what we're talking about here is very abstract. It's very out of, you know what I'm doing and, and I would say 
the environment I most probably struggle the most to articulate kind of the areas that I'm working in right now and is you know in sport I think we're really used to a very simple you know you know your job role if I say I'm a physio for British sailing you can be pigeonholed right like that's easy we know what that role means what responsibility I'd have what level I'm working at and kind of what we're talking about here like yeah I've gone more portfolio there's there's differences and people will struggle to sort of see the link and the why and what what that means but um fundamentally it strips back to the fact that for me personally what I get a kick out of what I enjoy is just putting the human at the center and whether that human is an elite sports person is somebody that's wanted to break a world record or is somebody in a high-end c-suite sort of you know leadership role in a corporate environment um I just want to get the best out of any individual team that I work with and will draw on as many worlds as possible (laughs) to to bring that to the party and if that's from you know testing in the military environment versus it being the extreme medicine stuff um i think all of our worlds have something to offer to each other that that could help us all perform better yeah what a summary i think when i say you lost me it's because i was staring into this nice view i've got outside of my window thinking about some of the the lessons i've learned from this conversation essentially and you know it's always nice to talk to people who've got a diverse view of the world, um, look at things through a different lens. And hopefully that's something that the listeners, will, it will come across to you in the same way it's come across to me and resonated with me. So Laura, look, thanks, thanks so much for giving up your time. And um, it, it's been a great conversation for me. Um, just to sort of, before we finish, it'd be really nice if the listeners could know where to, where to find you. So where, where are you on, on sort of social channels or where can the listeners look to find you? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for that, Ben. Um, I, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, um, the usual and just for under my name. So at Laura Penhall, which is about P E N H A U L and yeah. And website is the same www.laurapenhall.com. Um, but yeah, would, would, yeah, love to chat always always open to ideas and discussions and just brainstorming and, and getting creative and collaborating with different people so so yeah please do reach out and and hopefully meet some of you soon and if like me uh, you google laura uh, huh. you'll find one of the top one of the top <laughs> sort of hits <laughs> is laura penhall actor um which comes from that netflix documentary originally and now i believe it's on amazon which we'll, we'll link to in the show notes um losing sight of shore so as you say portfolio physio (laughs) world record holder and actress is is a pretty decent uh pretty decent way of summing up this pod oh brilliant thank you mate but um yeah actress i'm not sure anybody would take up me up on my acting skills but yeah if you do watch losing sight of shore it's um it's pretty raw (laughs) so so yeah that that definitely gives you a a very raw insight into me as a person (laughs) emotions and all i'll give you that fantastic thanks very much thanks ben a big thanks to laura for coming on and sharing her expertise but also her fascinating and unique story i hope you enjoyed today's informed performance podcast If you'd like to receive updates, then give us a follow on social media. You can find us on Instagram at InformPerformance or on Twitter at InformPod. 
You can also find today's show notes at our website, informperformance.com. You've been listening to the Inform Performance Podcast. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.